All righty. Hi, everyone. I am so excited for today's guest on the podcast. He is my former professor uh, of one of the best classes I've ever taken. And you guys have heard that. Sam and I have talked about it on the podcast. So doctor, I'm so sorry. <laughs> you are not a PhD yet. Is that right? You're in your third year? That's right. Not, not quite yet. A couple more years. Okay, so soon to be doctor in the making, Ben Feingold, and I would really love and welcome the opportunity for you to just introduce yourself, give your background and experience so that everybody can get to know you. Sure, sure, absolutely. Uh, how much time do we have here? I'm <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I'll, uh, sure. So I'm Ben Feingold. Uh, as Natalie said, I am an instructor at USC Price School. Um, I am also managing director at Gray's Lake Advisors. We are a consulting firm, and I'll get into a little bit later what we do. Um, and I am also uh, currently pursuing a PhD in economics at Claremont Graduate University. So I, I keep myself busy. Um, I also happen to have a master's in urban planning from USC that I got a, a little over a decade ago. So to give uh, a bit of an introduction about myself. I started, I, I studied public policy in undergrad at University of Michigan. And I realized very quickly that I was particularly interested in sort of the intersection between the public and private sectors. And I was fascinated by all of the ways in which public policy influenced private behavior. Um, both at the individual level and at the at the firm level. And I, like a lot of people, had no clue what urban planning was until I happened upon a an introduction course my junior year of college. And immediately I was hooked. You know, this idea that the built environment really shapes behavior on the ground fascinated me. Um, I love I've always loved cities. I love learning about development patterns. And so I came straight from undergrad into the uh, urban planning program at USC, where I focused on economic development. Um, while I was at USC, I interned with the city of Los Angeles, a department that no longer exists called the Redevelopment Agency. Mm -hmm. The Community Redevelopment Agency, uh, redevelopment in general, was really the primary tools that cities in California's had for economic development. And it was through redevelopment that uh, huge sums of public money were invested in communities through California um, for the better part of 50 years. And while I was, I was interning there, I was set, I was going to get a job with the redevelopment agency. I was going to work on real estate development and economic development deals. And my last year at USC, um, Jerry Brown, who was the governor of California at the time, along with the state legislature, passed a series of laws that ended redevelopment. Uh, there was a drawn out fight there were, frankly, certain cities in the state. I don't believe Los Angeles was one of these at all. Um, there were certain cities that were kind of taking advantage of this tool to funnel tax revenues back into the city. And it was it had grown beyond what I think it was ever intended. 
And unfortunately, the only solution that the state saw was to just end it. So I found myself at a crossroads, kind of searching again, like, what am I going to do next? Mm -hmm. And I took a slight turn and decided to go into the private sector. And I worked for a small real estate development firm. Um, I really loved real estate. I wanted to give it a fair shake. And I did development for uh, four years. I was working, consulting on behalf of property owners, other developers, did a lot of retail, like shopping center development and construction management, and really got into it. Also did a lot of what we're here to talk about today, a lot of financial analysis and learned on the fly. I, I really had a very cursory understanding of it um, going into the workforce. And so I sort of got, you know, trial by fire, got thrown in and learned a ton about real estate and real estate development, as well as finance. After doing that for several years, I made another slight turn into the consulting work that I do now. So Gray's Lake Advisors, my firm, I've been here for uh, over seven years. We are a litigation consulting firm, but everything we do, almost everything we do has something to do with real estate. So we, unfortunately, we get involved when the deals get messy, um, but we do a lot of valuation work, a lot of disputes between partners. And as a result, we get incredibly deep into the financial analysis. And so that brings us to the the last piece here, which is I teach at Price. And really, I've kind of carved out a specialty of teaching real estate and real estate finance to non-real estate students. So I teach a planning course that Natalie, you took back in the spring, where we kind of do you know, soup to nuts, we talk about the development process. And we also talk about our primary tool, which is financial analysis and pro forma modeling. Um, And now I'm actually teaching a a real estate development RED class, which is also designed for non real estate students. It's part of um, price offers a certificate program in real estate Mm -hmm. development. And so I'm teaching the classes called uh, foundations of real estate analysis. So it's even more in the weeds. We're spending a lot of time, more time than most people would care to in Excel, uh, building models, (laughs) tweaking models, and learning about the process that way. That's really amazing. And I have talked about your class on this podcast so many times. And um, we were actually interviewed by USC and they did ask like, what was your favorite class? And your class has been my absolute favorite, truly just everything from start to finish of the class was just what I could dream for as a student. Um, And so I'm just so happy to have you here. And Sam has been talking about how she really wants to take that class. So we're really hoping you're teaching it in the spring. I I am teaching it in the spring and uh, it's, yeah, it's a challenging class. It's a class I took uh, 12 years ago or something like that. Um, so I know I, I empathize, I sympathize with the students who are in the class, but it's, it is it is a really important foundation. And I firmly yeah. believe whether or not you work in real estate for a real estate developer or a real estate company, mm-hmm. these skills are so critical to have and take with you into the workforce. Um, so Absolutely. I'm glad to hear you like the class. 
I loved the class and Sam is going to love it. (laughs) I was going to say Natalie and I had many a conversation about what she was going to put on the parcel and where, you know, everything was going to be and how many units could we put. And I was like, I feel like I'm like halfway in the class already. (laughs) There you go. You'll, you'll have a leg up. You'll, you'll at least know what you're, I know what to expect a little bit. Yeah. 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 That's good. Yeah. So Hey, welcome to Urban Planning is Not Boring. I'm Sam. And I'm Nat. Essentially, what we're really hoping to get from this episode is to allow folks that maybe are not in the urban planning program or aren't really aware of some of the development side financial uh, stuff that goes on with urban planning. So, Our first question for you today is just to kind of explain to our listeners what a pro forma is and what it's used for. And that would be a great segue into the, into the conversation. Sure. Sure. So I, I want to start by saying I am a teacher, which means I will keep talking until someone cuts me off. So please, if you want to move on to another question, just stop me, wave your hand or just holler. Um, Okay. So I, A pro forma, I mean, pro forma itself is really just a fancy Latin word that means a projection, okay? Mm -hmm. So when we talk about pro formas in real estate, it really is used for any type of of financial analysis. But in real estate, we're typically talking about pro forma operating statements or statements of cash flows. So a piece of real estate, just like any investment, generates some revenues, hopefully, if if it's not a terrible investment, and also requires certain expenses. And when we look at an income statement or an operating statement, we're trying to go from, you know, we start with revenues, we take out expenses, and in real estate, we get to something called a net operating income. It's kind of similar to like a gross profit in the business world. A pro forma statement is as opposed to looking in the past at something that's actually happened, we're projecting forward into the future. And we are trying to assess what we think or what we expect those revenues and expenses will look like for a given project. This can be used for just an investment deal. So if we're buying an existing operating building, that's a lot easier because we usually Mm -hmm. have some operating history and we can kind of look at the trends and, and project those forwards and we get to a pro forma. We also use it in development deals. And in development, it's a lot harder because you have no history to go off of, right? Typically, you're making the decision whether or not to make an an investment in a development project several years, depending on the size of the development. I mean, it could be three, four, five, or more years in the future before you actually start operating. And so your pro forma is trying your best to, it's it's going to be an imperfect exercise, but to project forward what you think the cash flows from that property are going to be once they begin. Now, the pro forma is, I was thinking about this, it's, it's neither the starting point, nor is it the end point of an analysis. So we talk about pro forma analysis, but really what we're talking about is a tool called discounted cash flow analysis which is really the core the core model of 
financial analysis. Discounted cash flow analysis, we also call it a DCF, is used to try to assess the value today of an uncertain stream of cash flows sometime in the future, right? Mm -hmm. And we use this, this tool, this mathematical tool called discounting to, to do that analysis. Now, we need to know what those cash flows are. So that's why we use a pro forma, which is our best guess of what we think those, those cash flows will be. And now, so, so that's why the pro forma is not the end point. The end, mm -hmm. the end result is a DCF analysis and you get to some, either it's a, a measure of net present value, or you might be calculating an internal rate of return, which is a percentage trying to reflect what, what type of return you're getting on your investment. But the pro forma is also not the starting point because you don't just pull the numbers out of thin air, right? Mm -hmm. The numbers that go into the pro forma are they have to be supported by market research and rigorous analysis. And that's what makes, that's really where the work goes in. Once you have a pro forma, the DCF analysis is fairly basic math, mm -hmm. but where the work really goes in, and this is where, you know, I personally think, and I tell my students that planners kind of have this unique advantage in trying to really visualize the project three and the community three, four years from now, but you need to do the analysis to make sure that the numbers that go into your pro forma are actually realistic and achievable. Yeah. Um, so that that's the general uh, base, you know, the, the basics of what a pro forma is. Awesome. Yeah. And would you say, so when we're talking about pro formas, are they used for every single development project in which there's, you know, you're purchasing real estate or, you know, is it only for housing? Is it, are there different pro formas for different typologies? You know, can you kind of go into those details? Absolutely. So the short answer is yes, you're going to develop a pro forma for any type of not really, not just a real estate development, any type of investment, you might develop a pro forma. Now, obviously, we're thinking about it in the context of real estate. So I'll, I'll talk about that. Um, you're going to have a pro forma for housing, for retail, office, hospitality, like a hotel, industrial, mm -hmm. any product type. You're going to have some sort of pro forma, some sort of projection of what you expect your revenues and your expenses will be, but you might have different components of that pro forma based on the product type. So there are different conventions. Uh, let's let's start with apartments because I think most people are most familiar with that product type because. Mm -hmm. Most of us have been renters, um, looked for apartments, lived in an apartment, kind of understand mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. When we deal with an apartment, typically, in most cases, the leases are structured the same. So the tenant, the renter, will lease a specific unit. They'll be quoted a price, and that is the price they pay. There may be some differences. You know, Maybe some buildings will include water and trash. Maybe others will include, you know, student housing, for example, oftentimes includes all utilities. So there may be slight differences, but by and large, the price that you're quoted when you sign a, an apartment lease is, the, is what you pay. That's the check you write each month. And then the landlord is responsible for 
all of the operating expenses of a building, right? And so in your pro forma, you're going to have a, you know, an item for your rents that you collect. You'll usually have an allowance for like vacancy in the building or bad debts, which, you know, basically means some people just won't pay and you won't, mm -hmm. you know, you'll have to write off the, that rent. And then you're going to have to deduct from that your operating expenses, right? Mm -hmm. And as the landlord, you're going to be responsible for everything, for the, the maintenance on the building, the property taxes, the insurance, um, you know, trash collection, anything you can think of, the landlord is responsible. And so you're going to have a fairly robust set of expenses that you need to account for. Now, when we move to retail and to office and other commercial leases, the conventions in the industry are a little bit different. So in, in commercial leases, you have different types of lease, leases. It's, it's a spectrum, but on one end of the spectrum is what we call a full service lease. And a full service lease looks much more like an apartment lease. It means the tenant pays the price. And then that's what the tenant pays. They don't have their, they don't have variability month in and month out. And the landlord is responsible for all the expenses. Mm -hmm. On the under, on the other end of the spectrum, though, there's something that we call a triple net lease. And a triple net lease means that the tenant not only pays the rent, but also pays operating expenses, um, insurance on the building, and uh, and taxes, property taxes. And so that pro forma is going to look different because the landlord is not responsible for those expense items. So the, the, the allowance for the landlord's expenses are going to be quite a bit smaller. Um, there are other differences. For example, apartment leases are typically one year long, maybe a little shorter, maybe a little longer, but they don't tend to be very long-term leases. Mm -hmm. Whereas in commercial real estate, whether that's retail, office, industrial, it's not uncommon to have five, 10 year leases with options to extend even longer. And so the pro formas there are going to look different, quite different because in an apartment building, pretty much every year, your rents are going to reset to the market rents. Mm -hmm. Whereas in a commercial building, you're likely going to have your contract rents, which are the rents that are laid out in the lease for a much longer period where the market might be doing, you know, that might be going up and down. Your contract rents are going to be fairly stable. And then only every five, 10 years do those reset. So you have different considerations that you need to pay attention to and understand when you're doing the pro forma analysis. But the same sort of workhorse model is going to be used for every type of project. Right. And could you address just some of the most important components of a pro forma? If you have someone who, you know, I remember when I was at work, we were meeting with our financial consultant for a development project and they were just listing it. They were like the IRR and, you know, just kind of going over all these things. And I was like, oh, I'm learning about that right now. So right. could you go over just some of the most important components of a pro forma that you think people should just really know about? Yes. Um, okay. So First off, the rule with pro forma modeling, there's a, there's a saying that says garbage in, garbage out, which means 
the model is only as good as the inputs and the assumptions that you put into it, right? And so everything is important, but I'll focus on a couple of key inputs and then a couple of key outputs from a pro forma model. On the input side, I would say your rents are going to be critical, right? You need to be able to justify your rents. And sometimes that's not necessarily just what, what are rents in today's market. Because again, maybe your project is going to only be completed five or more years from now. So you need to have a good justification for why do I think I can achieve rents that are maybe above what we're seeing in the market today, but I have a really good business plan that I'm confident I can achieve these rents in the future. So mm -hmm. rents are critical, um, uh, you know, one of your critical inputs. The other input that I don't know if I would say it's the most important, but it can be the most impactful is something that we call a discount rate. Um, this is like a whole, a whole lesson in finance that I won't get <laughs> so into, but a discount rate is basically the risk adjusted rate of return. It's driven by the risks that are inherent to the specific project. And it's also driven by your sources of capital. So the debt and the equity that you're putting into the deal, that's going to drive your discount rate. And you're in a, in just the present value, like the math calculation, the discount rate is probably the single input that can affect your numbers the most. So I would argue that's perhaps the most, uh, again, not important, but the most impactful of your inputs. On the output side, the net present value is sort of the the end the end goal of a discounted cash flow analysis. And what the net present value tells you is sort of we have all of these outflows and inflows. So expenses that were that were that are going out of our pockets and revenues that are coming into our pockets, they all happen at different times in development in particular. It's like very expensive outflows at the beginning mm -hmm. of the project. Then you have usually some time where you get nothing because you're building mm -hmm. and then you start to get in, you start to get revenues, but they take a little while to ramp up. And then finally you sell at the end and you get this big pop of revenues at the end of the project. So mm -hmm. it's very inconsistent. It takes a lot of time. And the value of the DCF is that we can boil all of that down into what is this thing worth to me today? And the general rule is if your net present value is greater than zero, then it makes sense to do the project. Uh, you're better off taking the project on than you are not um, because it's a net positive. Um, if it's less than zero, you're worse off. So it's kind of that helps you. We call it the go, no go decision, right? You're, you're trying to make a decision. Do I move forward with this project? And the NPV tells you that. The other key metric that we look at as far as outputs go is something called the internal rate of return. Natalie, you mentioned that. Internal rate of return is a similar tool. It's kind of a cousin of net present value. And it is because the cash flows are so inconsistent on a long-term development deal, the IRR, the internal rate of return, boils it down to sort of a single effective annual rate. So you can actually take an IRR across multiple projects and you can compare those to decide, well, what's actually getting me the best return on my, on my investment? Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so the IRR is a, another really important metric. But the real value of pro forma analysis is not necessarily that it spits out the magical answer to the question. What it lets us do is conduct what we call a sensitivity analysis. And that's one of the most valuable tools that we have as developers is a sensitivity analysis says, okay, I know I'm going to pay attention to my IRR and I know I'm going to pay attention to my net present value. How do those key outputs change when I start to move my inputs around, right? Because we said this is all about uncertainty, right? Mm -hmm. We don't know how long it's going to take to build it, how much it's going to cost, and how, how much we're going to be able to generate in revenues from a project. So what a sensitivity analysis allows us to do is it says, gosh, well, you know, I I plan to be up and running in four years, right? Starting to generate positive cash flows. What if we hit an unexpected delay? What if it becomes five years or six years? Hmm. Now, how does that change my IRR? How does that change my net present value? Does it all of a sudden make the project infeasible? Does it make it a, a, a negative NPV? Because then maybe I need to consider, right, how, how either maybe I'm, I'm not sure I want to move forward with this project or I understand that, okay, timing is really important here. I don't have a lot of wiggle room, so I need to do my work to make sure that I can get this project done on time, right? And you can do similar sensitivity analyses with rents, right? I think I'm going to achieve, you know, 20% above the current top of market rents, but what if I don't hit that, right? What if I'm 10% above or below that? How does it change my my outputs? And so that's the real, I would say the key benefit of a pro forma analysis is that it helps us understand what are the most important inputs for us to hit in order to make the project successful. Okay. Wow, that was a lot, but like I'm learning a lot. <laughs> um, just like a little side like tangent. I feel like yeah. hearing all of this, it's like made me think a lot about how like COVID must have really just like thrown a wrench and like all the financial analyses that like either were like scheduled for like 2020, 2021, I guess into 2022 yeah. or like are in process and like, especially just with like commercial space and office space which is for a lot of like companies they don't need office space anymore they need significantly less because of remote work and yeah i don't know if that was i don't know if there's a question in there but i was just thinking about no that's that. you're, you are you're a hundred percent right and now now we're kind of getting into my day job right which is working with okay. legal disputes and this is this is definitely something that we are seeing happen because the reality is real estate developers are not paid to be pessimists right mm-hmm. they are optimistic they are creators and mm-hmm. so no one in 2019 was out here modeling well gosh what happens if we have a global pandemic that completely alters the way that we interact with buildings and the built environment, right? Mm -hmm. And so what we are seeing now is a a reassessment of some of those analyses, right? Mm -hmm. And the key thing, and, you know, I think I I should have mentioned this off the bat, what 
what is this analysis used for, right? I, I've spoken about it from the perspective of the developer, um, mm -hmm. understanding sort of the key elements of a project and what needs to come together. But pro formas like this, particularly for, for development deals, are used to go out into the market and get capital. So if mm -hmm. you're working with a lender, right, they want to see what what is the projected value of this project because if mm -hmm. i'm going to let's say i'm a construction lender i'm going to give you money to build the project that's mm -hmm. all well and good i need to make sure that the project is going to make money so that someone eventually will give you another loan or buy the mm -hmm. project and let you pay off my loan i need to protect my investment if i'm mm -hmm. a lender mm -hmm. similarly if i'm an equity investor and i'm going to give you my capital and you're going to invest it and put it to work, I want to make sure that I can get my returns on that money. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, these pro formas are not only used internally, they're used very frequently with all of the providers of capital for these projects. And so, mm -hmm. you know, when you, you're out there pitching a deal in 2019, and all of a sudden, the world gets flipped upside down a mm -hmm. few months later, um, you have to manage those relationships, right? And so it's a it's a living, breathing process, this financial mm -hmm. analysis. You don't only yeah. do it, you don't only do it at one point in time. Mm -hmm. You're constantly updating it as you get more and more information mm -hmm. so that you can make sure that the deal stays on track, right? And right. so what something like COVID does is it says, okay, gosh, let's reassess, right? And bait, you know. If you are under construction, you mm. can't really backtrack at that point, right? So now yeah. maybe you're looking at damage control. You're trying to mm. understand what can we expect. Mm -hmm. it, if you haven't yet begun construction or maybe you haven't even begun entitlements of a property, now what the analysis allows you to do is say, okay, does it even make sense to move forward with the deal now? Maybe we need, maybe we were going to, entitle office space, but now we realize, gosh, there's probably going to be a lot less demand for office in this mm -hmm. market in the future. So the pro forma analysis allows you to consider alternatives, right? Okay. And say, okay, well, now we think residential makes a lot more sense, or now we mm -hmm. think retail makes a lot more sense. And you yeah. run those numbers and, and update your expectations all the time. Um, but mm -hmm. that's a really good point. And, and, and it, it's worth noting that these models, I mean, when you work with a developer, you have dozens and dozens of iterations of your financial analysis because mm -hmm. you're constantly tweaking it with the best available information. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I guess kind of along those lines, um, we are wondering if you think that pro formas are kind of the best way to gauge success or determine whether or not a project is going to be successful and kind of why or why not you have those thoughts? Sure. So I would say because pro formas are relied upon by the capital providers, that gives us a pretty, pretty good support to say that they are essential to determining whether or not a project will be successful. Is it sufficient to have a pro forma with a positive net present value and then like, 
you call it a day, you say, yep, we got it. We're, we're we, mission accomplished, right? Uh, that's yeah. not enough. And, mm-hmm. and that's where the hard work really happens when you are creating a business plan that is justifying your pro forma, right? The pro forma and the financial analysis, that's math. It's important. It is an, a, a necessary component of the development process, but it is not sufficient to ensure success, right? And so the best developers, in my mind, are ones who they know the numbers inside and out, but they have a, mm-hmm. a really good, compelling story and business plan that tells you this project's going to work in this community and I have no doubts they're going to be able to achieve the numbers that they're projecting in their pro forma, right? I mean, that's, I think, I think there are a, a lot of um, misconceptions about the development community being only focused on numbers. Mm-hmm. And certainly there are developers out there and there are types of real estate where it, it really is a financial asset. You know, there are certain types of real estate like um, uh, uh, single tenant retail, triple net leases. Like if you have just a bank branch that's its own building, you go and buy that building and and you you basically, it's like a bond. You just get a monthly rent check and that's pretty <laughs> much it. That's like, that is about the numbers and really only the numbers. Mm-hmm. But if you're a developer doing an infill project in an existing community, mm-hmm. that project is not going to be successful just because you've done some math that shows that, oh, I'm going to achieve the, the required return that the market dictates. Mm-hmm. That project will only be successful if you have done the work to make sure that it fits seamlessly within the community. Mm-hmm. This is so interesting because I feel like it really overlaps with a lot of different parts of like planning besides just like the financial part, like you were saying, it has to fit into a community. So it's like, you have to like do like, you have to do like on the ground work and like make sure that the like it's something that the community wants, needs, supports. And like, I don't know. I yes. feel like every time we talk about different topics, I'm like, they all like totally, <laughs> totally overlap and like intersect in really interesting ways. That I like when we like, we're talking about having this conversation, I was like, uh, I'm not going to understand any of it, but I feel like it's starting to like kind of conceptualize in my brain, like why this all matters so much. Yeah. And there's, I mean, I am biased because of my own background, but like, I really think it is critical to come at it from the perspective of effectively of a planner, right? From the perspective Mm of, okay, I need to identify a need that a need within this market, right? So that there's a quantitative aspect to that. Look at the the you know amount of square footage in this market and how quickly it's it's being absorbed and you know what's the price other people are willing to pay for this type of building. That's all important. But if you're only looking at the dollars and cents of it, you're ignoring the process, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you you both know as planners that entitlements are really hard to get right mm-hmm. and especially in a an urbanized area like Los Angeles 
if you go in and you say, yeah, I've, I've done my analysis and this project makes sense, the rents justify the costs and here we go. But you go try to take that in front of in front of the you know plum committee or the city planning uh, commission, you're and you haven't done the work to reach out to the neighborhood council mm-hmm. or go talk to adjacent property owners or see how how well organized they are. Mm-hmm. You're going to run into issues. And if you have yeah. to do uh, any sort of environmental review, forget mm-hmm. about it, right? you you need to do the work beforehand and not become fixated on a single plan that you've analyzed and made sure, you know, pencils is what we say when a project generates sufficient returns. Um, It's really critical to think about it from the perspective of the users of the project on the ground and the community surrounding that project, because you need that support to be successful before you even, before you even get to put a shovel in the ground. And certainly once you're open and operating. Right. Absolutely. And I feel like you kind of just alluded to this in terms of, you know, community support and doing the work ahead of time. But um, I guess quick summary, what do you believe are some of the like key characteristics to a successful development project? Sure. So for me personally, and this is something I emphasize a lot in my courses, I think it is essential to think about any development from the perspective of its users on the ground. Mm -hmm. And so users doesn't necessarily always mean tenants either, Mm -hmm. right? In an apartment building, the two are pretty aligned, right? You're Mm -hmm. thinking about who's going to be using this building. Well, it's the renters, right? So I Mm -hmm. I need to make sure that there's, there are amenities for that they want. I need to make Mm -hmm. sure that the type of apartments, the size of apartments that I'm offering uh, jives with the the community fabric, right? And the type of people that will be living here uh, or wanting to live here in the future. Um, I need to establish connectivity between the places that my residents go. But if you're building an office building, your tenants are the are the companies who are leasing space from you, but your users are not necessarily, right? It's not some, some monolith that each firm represents. Mm-hmm. You have individual workers, you have visitors to these firms, you have the people who maintain the building. And so you need to really critically think about, am I providing the types of amenities, the types of networks and connections that the individuals who will be using this on the ground are going to need. And this, I mean, this all brings us back to urban planning, right? Because this is what we think about as planners is we have this built environment, these these non-living things that we plop down in the middle of our city, and they very much influence the behavior of the people Mm -hmm. moving around them and throughout Mm -hmm. them. And so that's, I mean, for me, I think, the most successful developments are the ones that clearly put thought into that and then curate the amenities and the the types of tenants that they target to really fit seamlessly with both the existing community and kind of the trajectory of that community. And so this is where there's this really uh, uh, happy marriage between the quantitative analysis 
And the more qualitative analysis that urban planners are trained to do to really have a um, a holistic view of the building and the project within its neighborhood context. Yeah. Yeah, I can say without a doubt that I'm sure after everyone listens to this episode, they will understand why you're my favorite professor ever. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, you know, anyone who's listening is uh, is free to enroll in the class <laughs> next next spring. Uh, truly, yeah, yes. I'll be so, there. Yeah, uh, looking forward to it. Yeah, everyone I tell them, just like shouting from the rooftop, like, join PVD 625. Um, so I think really the one, the number one thing that I really gained from your class among so much, but really the number one thing that always really stood out was you always emphasized how we do really need as urban planners to understand why developers do things the way they do things. And if you understand that side, then your role on the other side, on the qualitative side becomes a lot easier because rather than fighting a developer on why they're going about things the way they are, you can actually inform and assist and help and then really create this like great cohesive project. And so I feel like the pro forma is that one financial side that allows us to understand, you know, how a project is going to work out in the end and to really sympathize with like developers need to make profit they, in order for the, their, their projects to really work. And then on our side, as the urban planner, we need to make sure that that's not all they're thinking about. And I think that's where the relationship just becomes so important. And I feel like that was always something you really pushed forward in your class. And I just feel like right now, just discussing like you know, a, success, a successful development project like that really came to light. And I was just kind of really thinking about that all over again. Yeah. No, I you you synthesized it better than I ever could. So thank you for that, Natalie. I, I appreciate it. And, and you're right. And I think being able to sort of, it, the pro forma is the way that we can translate between the planning community and the development community, right? right. And, and it's a, it, it is not a matter of developers necessarily being profit hungry. It's the fact that there's, there are capital markets, right? Mm -hmm. And, and the, the individuals and the companies that put their capital into deals, they have options. Yeah. And so if every developer is only thinking about, well, you know, profits be damned, what can we do to, to uh, only improve the community at any cost? That's wonderful. But they're not mm -hmm. going to attract a lot of capital, right? Or they're going yeah, to attract right. a much smaller subset of capital. And mm -hmm. so they can't compete. And mm -hmm. so I think it's really critical. You know, we, we as planners have these tools that we we want to um, incorporate into projects, right? We want open space. We mm -hmm. want uh, a public space. But we need to understand there is a real cost to yeah. providing that. And it's not necessarily just the construction cost. It's maybe you know, foregoing revenues on the backside as well. Right? right. And so I think it's really important for anyone who's working along the development process to have a working understanding of this type of financial analysis mm -hmm. so that they can speak the language and they can be more effective partners. I think at the end of the day, the this is not a zero sum game, right? Mm -hmm. And we can make projects that benefit everyone, that benefit the the 
developers and the capital providers who are building the projects and also benefit the ultimate users and the surrounding community. Absolutely. Yeah. And I don't want to like dive into a whole new topic, but I was just thinking because Natalie and I are in um, our housing studio together mm -hmm. and it's um, it's about affordable housing development, I believe. And yeah. last night, um, our professor was kind of asking like what we want to learn. And I was just thinking like kind of what you were saying with like there's a real cost to a lot of these things and like how do we make affordable housing like desirable to developer when it's like they could be making you know right. however much by putting in market rate units mm -hmm. but it's like we have this like very dire need for affordable housing and I feel like just having some understanding of like okay what what goes into like incentivizing affordable housing like construction or um, like allotments and like how do we go about making it desirable and I guess like affordable for a develop like make it sense right. financially for the developer as well is like something that I'm really curious about because I just don't really understand that side of it and I'm hoping like to take that away from this class but um, I was just that was just a thought that I had since we just had the class last night yeah. sure no I mean that that is the the question of affordable housing. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, so I know. you picked it's a like big such one a big to start thing. With. I know. Yeah. I know. <laughs> but that's, you know, that's actually getting into my my research as a PhD student. One of my projects is actually looking at affordable housing development incentives and to what extent they are effective. Um, and so I'm still working on that project. When I finish, you know, you you guys can have me back on and I'll, okay. I'll talk yes. all about it. Yeah, oh my gosh. Yes. Yeah. That would be yeah. great. Wow. Thank you so much really for just doing this deep dive for everyone. I know that there's so much to be gained from listening to this because it really is just so important and we really appreciate you coming on. My pleasure. <laughs> Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. We really hope that you enjoyed this episode of Urban Planning is Not Boring. If you did, please remember to send us to your friends and follow us uh, wherever you get your podcasts. And remember guys, urban planning is not boring. No, it is not. <laughs>